All right, so we're in John 14. Um, who can tell me? So we've been going through uh, 13 the last couple weeks, and we're going from John 13 to chapter 17. Uh, does anybody remember anything from last week that, uh, that we learned about? So we had the foot washing, and then, so what did the foot washing symbolize? Somebody tell me. Any thoughts? We serve each other. Yes, so it symbolized service, but then what was it also a pointer towards? Do you remember? That's good. So it's also, that's really good. And so that's what's cool about that foot washing passage is not only do, does it serve as a, an example of, of the depths to which we should be willing to stoop in order to serve one another, but it also serves as a picture of the gospel, right? We talked about that, about how G, it's like kind of Jesus at the head of the table where he deserves to be, right? Instead, and then instead of maintaining that place, he gets up from, ta- from the table, he clothes himself like a servant, and he bends down and begins to wash the disciples' feet. It's a picture of the gospel in an acted-out parable. And so that's what's cool about that passage. It kind of serves as this dual thing of like, this is the standard. In fact, Jesus says, the way in which I love you that's the way that you should love one another, right? So it serves as a standard of service, but it also reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us in his incarnation, in his death for our sins, and in his resurrection and ascension. So that's the context, right? And then last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is sitting there at a table with his closest friends, And he looks at them and he says, one of you will betray me. And they're all freaking out. They're like, what? Is it me? Imagine that your best friend said to you, you're you're sitting at a table and you have all these close friends. And then they look you in the face and they say, one of you guys is going to betray me. If you're any decent friend, your heart is going to say, not me. It can't be. It's not me. I wouldn't do that to my friend. This is the moment that we're talking about. And so Jesus gives this this little sign to John. And most scholars think that Jesus was actually whispering to John when when he gives him this sign. And he says, the one to whom I give this piece of bread after I've dipped it, that's the one who's going to betray me. And so he dips it, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot. And he turns to Judas, and he says, what you do, do quickly. And the idea in the Greek there is he's basically just saying, just get it over with. What you do, do quickly. And so now, in the end of this passage, Look with me in chapter 13, uh, verse 
Let's see here. Verse 36. Peter, he says, actually here, we'll back up a little bit. Look with me at verse 33. Chapter 13, verse 33. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And Peter, heartbroken at the fact that Jesus is leaving. And we're going to explain why that's such a heartbreaking thing here in a few minutes. But he says, where are you going? Why can't I go with you now? He says, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Have you ever had a friend so close that you were willing to take a bullet for them? Think of someone like that. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster is not, will not crow before you deny me three times. Absolutely devastating for Peter. So the context is Jesus tells them, I'm about to leave and I'm about to be betrayed. And so these disciples are bewildered. They're beside themselves. And the reason that they're beside themselves is because they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Rightly so. But they misunderstood something about the Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, we even talked about this last week in Daniel chapter 7. In the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies about the Messiah having this amazing, massive kingdom. It starts out as a small stone, it says in Daniel chapter 2. And then it becomes a mountain that fills the earth, right? This is the kingdom that the Lord God will set up in those days, right? In the days of Jesus, But what they didn't know is that in order to establish this kingdom, Jesus had to be slaughtered like a lamb. He had to die for the sins of his people. He had to rise again and ascend to the throne of the universe and then commission his disciples to go and preach the gospel. But they didn't know that that was going to be between the, uh, the majestic, you know, the height of the kingdom and uh, where they were now. So they are caught off guard at the fact that Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving. And so they are troubled. They are heartbroken. I think about when I was 14, give you guys a little snapshot into my life. Uh, When I was 14, uh, my parents told me that my dad had been transferred up to Bothell, Washington. I lived over half of my life uh, in Idaho, in a small town in Idaho. Uh, Fruitland, Idaho is the name of the place. And uh, it's a a tiny town, like 1,200 people. Um, And uh, so I was told that we were going to be moving to this place that I had never been didn't know anybody. And so in that moment, I remember being absolutely devastated because I was playing sports. I had my friend group. I was very connected, right? And in a moment, I was told that everything I ever knew was going to be ripped away from me, was going to be gone. 
And that's what these disciples are feeling here in this moment. They're feeling like all of their hopes, all of their dreams are being ripped from them. And you know what Jesus does? And what the amazing thing that Jesus does is rather than focusing on the fact that he's about to be slaughtered for the sins of the people of God, rather than focusing on the fact that he's about to die, he takes time once again to encourage his disciples. An amazing picture of what it looks like to, to live a life of love and sacrifice and service for other people. Kind of like you were talking about, like laying your life down to bless other people. And so in this passage, Jesus actually gives the disciples four things that are specifically meant to encourage them. Four things. And they all end in I-O-N because I like it that way. Uh, so the four things, and then I'll kind of unpack them a little bit. But they, the first one, to remember if you're taking notes, destination. Second one, direction. Last one, or third one, revelation. And the fourth one is mission. So destination, direction, revelation, and mission. Or another way that we can say this is destination refers to where the disciples will be. Direction refers to how they will get there. Revelation refers to why they can trust that they will be at this destination and that this is the way to go. So revelation refers to the why and mission refers to what they are to do in the meantime. What they are to do in the meantime. So look with me at verses one through four. So in one through four, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So the first thing that Jesus tells them, what's interesting is that that word there, dwelling places, it's actually used again in 1423, but it actually conveys, dwelling place sounds weird, uh, like some sort of, I don't know, it sounds so cold. But what that word actually conveys there is it conveys the idea of a home. It conveys the idea of a home. When you, when you hear the word home, you think of a place that's safe, right? You think of a, unless you've had a bad experience at home. But typically, when you think about home, you think about a place that's safe. You think about a place that's, that's loving, that you find support and encouragement, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that I go, the reason that I go is to prepare a home for you. Now, D.A. Carson, when he, when he comments on this passage, he says, 
So one of the things that always confused me about this passage when I was, when I was younger, when I was like your guys' age, um, Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And I always had this picture in my mind, like for the last 2,000 years that Jesus has been working on a construction project. Like he's getting, he's getting the rooms just right for heaven so that when I get there, you know, I'll have my master suite, right? Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's this never-ending construction project. But so what D.A. Carson notes about this is that it's not that Jesus has been having this ongoing construction project for the last two years. What is being communicated in this verse is he's saying that the going is what prepares the place. So it's not that he is presently preparing it, but it's the fact that he is leaving or in another, another way to say that, it's the fact that he is about to die for your sins that prepares your place in heaven. Does that make sense? So the going, his departing out of this world and returning to the Father is what prepares Bryce's place. Now, also in this passage, Jesus talks about, he talks about, so I'm going, and by the going, I'm preparing a place. And then he says, if I go, I will come Again, so what this is referring to, commentators are kind of split on this. Some people think that the, the coming again is referring to the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Other people, and I actually kind of lean more towards the second one, that this is referring to the second coming of Jesus. So throughout church history, like down, basically all the way back, Every Orthodox Christian has always affirmed that Jesus will come again. So he ascended to heaven, and Jesus is coming back. Even the Apostles' Creed says to judge the quick and the dead. In other words, Jesus is coming back, like in Matthew 25, to separate the sheep, which are the people of God, from the goats, which are those that are not. So Jesus is returning. And so this is what he's talking about in this passage. And the return of Jesus falls under a category of theology that has the title eschatology. And I am a big eschatology nerd. I spent about three years studying it. Uh, if you want to talk about it, I have particular opinions on it, but that's not for this message. Different message, different day. Um, it's funny because... That's one of the ones that people debate over the most. But one of the thi- what everybody agrees on, unless you're a heretic, is that Jesus is coming back. Everybody agrees on that. <laughs> and so the reason that this would be great hope for the disciples and the reason that this is great hope for you and I is because... We live in a world that is broken. Can we agree on that? There's sickness, there's sin, there's death, there's oppression, injustice. All of these things that are absolutely not right. We, even someone who's not a believer in Jesus can look at the world and say, yeah, there's some pretty messed up things that are happening. And even in our own lives, there's heartache, there's sin, there's sadness, there's 
all these difficult things that we go through as part of the human experience. And what this verse tells us is that this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. This life is as bad as it's ever going to get because Jesus is coming again and he will take you to be where he is. He will take you to be where he is. In fact, that's what he says here. He says that I am going to prepare a home for TJ that he may be with me where I am, a home for Neil. We have a home with the triune God and he has, the son of God has prepared it by his death and resurrection and ascension. And this is how you and I face those difficult things because it can be so easy in the moments when we're frustrated, when we're, we're feeling depressed. It's like, it feels like the whole world is coming undone. And then we remind ourselves, this is not the end of the story. Jesus is coming again. And no matter what, I will be with him where he is. And we're going to, there's more to that, but we'll get to that later. Um, so here's my question for us as we're thinking about that. Do we actually, when you face difficult times, when you face uh, heartache, do you remind yourself that this is not the end of the story? Do you remind yourself the hope of the gospel that, that you are Christ's and you will be with Christ where he is? And he will come back here as well. That's also a side pet peeve of mine. People talk about, you know, they talk only about going to heaven, but then that's only half of the story. Heaven is only part of it. Jesus is coming back to renew all of creation and remove sin, death, and destruction. That is the blessed hope of the church. It's not only going to heaven. Paul actually speaks about that in 2 Corinthians. And he says, that is, it's, it's good to be with Christ, but the resurrection is the hope of the church, not the rapture. I'm using those words. If you don't know what those words are, I'll explain after because that's a whole can of worms. Uh, but the resurrection is the hope of the Christian. So uh, moving on. So we've talked about the, we've talked about the destination. Now we're going to talk about the direction or how will, how will the disciples get there? How will we get there? In verse 5, Thomas says, he's like, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, let alone how to get there. He's very confused at this statement that Jesus makes. And so what Jesus says to him is he says, I am the way to get there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the exclusive claim of the gospel. This is the exclusive claim of God where he says that there is absolutely no other way to come to God. 
There is absolutely no other way for us to be right with God apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. Think about it this way. Uh, How many of you have ever been to Seattle or driven in Seattle? I hate driving there. Uh, It is the most annoying, infuriating place uh, on the planet for driving, at least for me, because the streets are laid out just in an absolutely haphazard, uh, idiotic way in my mind. Um, But one of the things that's super confusing, being a small-town Idaho dude, uh, all these one-way streets. I'm like... Before I moved up to Washington, I'd never even seen a one-way street. But they're like everywhere in Seattle. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, streets should be both in many ways, right? You should go all the ways. Um, (laughs) 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 Should be able to go this way, that way. I want to go wherever I want. Uh, But, so think about it. (laughs) Think about it this way. Um, The way to God is a one-way street. And it's Jesus And so what Jesus is saying is those that come to God must be united to Christ. Those that come to the Father must be one with the Son. And the way that you become one with the Son is to enter into a relationship with Him, is to repent of your sins and turn towards Him and trust in Him completely for salvation. That is the way to become one with the Son, and that is the way that we come to the Father. And this is relevant for your life, especially for you, Bryce. Well, you're going to a Christian college, so, uh, but for any of you, I mean, you're going to a secular college. Um, For any of you who plan to go to college, you live in the midst of a culture that is pluralistic and materialistic. And what that means, and relativistic. And what that means is essentially they will tell you that if you believe that there is only one way to God, that you're a bigot and that you're stupid. Essentially is what they'll tell you. They'll say that the, an absolute view of truth is, is outdated and anachronistic. And they'll say... Now, catch this. Catch the hypocrisy of this. They will say to you that there is absolutely no absolute truth. Did you catch why that's idiotic? Yes. Exactly. That's the... So, in logic, there's what's called the law of non-contradiction. Okay? That statement contradicts itself. Therefore, it should be thrown out and discarded because it's not logical. And yet, it is the predominant view of our culture and the philosophy of our age is that all truths are equal. But the problem is, if all truths are true, then nothing is true. So, and the reality is is at the ground level, nobody believes that. For instance, you could be taking a test in school, Madison, and uh, your teacher, you could, let's say you cheat on a test. Not saying you do. Let's say you did. Let's say you did. Hypothetically. <laughs> I know you're a good person. <laughs> hypothetically. Let's say hypothetically. Now, if your teacher was a relativist, you could just say that, well, according my truth is that cheating 
is not bad. Cheating is good. It's moral in, in my truth, right? And so a relativist would have to say, I, I guess that's your truth, if they're going to be consistent. But the problem is they won't, because nobody's a consistent relativist. So the po- that's a little bit of a rant. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, is we live in a culture that tells us that truth is something that's relative, it's subjective, it's whatever you want it to be. And Jesus says, no, it's not. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no way to God apart from Jesus. There is no truth in this world that does not agree with the revelation found in the word or God's general revelation of the created order. There is no truth apart from Jesus Christ. And there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, in the beginning of this gospel, John says that Well, here, let's read it. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 2. He, speaking of Jesus, was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Turn back to chapter 14. What that's saying there, that is a direct reference to this idea of Jesus as the life, meaning that everything that has existence in this universe owes its existence to Jesus Christ. Everything that exists exists because he wills it and because he says, you may stay in existence. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. A second reason why this would be relevant for us, this idea of Jesus being the only way, is because if we really believe this, if we really believe that there is no way to God apart from Jesus, then it'll motivate us to tell our friends. It'll motivate us towards mission, which we're going to talk about as soon as I get there. Uh, But it'll motivate us to share the gospel with other people Because the reality is, if there is only one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ, if we don't tell people about that, we're not loving them. It's not loving to hide the truth. It's not loving to hide the gospel. So we've talked about where we're going, talked about how to get there through Christ. And now, so Philip ask this question, right? He's like, okay, I see that there's a, there's a place prepared for me. You're going, I get it, you're coming back. Yep, I got it, okay? But then he's like, show us the Father and this is enough. In other words, what's the proof? What's the evidence? How can I know that these things are true? Look at verse nine. He says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
So what Jesus is saying is he's saying the authentication, the proof that what I'm telling you is true, that I am the only way, that uh, there is a place prepared for you in heaven, the truth, the, that truth, what, what validates what I have just told you is the fact that I am one with the Father, the fact that I am God. We talked about that last week, about the union between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Okay. Jesus is essentially saying, if, you have seen, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And this is the, 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 the union between the, the, tri, the, the three persons of the Godhead. Oh, darn it. I was going to do a question up there, but I left. We'll do it after. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, but this is the union between the three persons of the Trinity. They are one and one in being, three in persons. Wrap your mind around that. Uh, but Jesus is essentially saying here, is he's saying that if you've seen the Father, you have seen, or if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so this is the, the support. He's essentially saying, he's like, you want to know that this is true? I'm tell- I am God Almighty standing in front of you, telling you that this is true. This is my word. That's the support. Think about it like this. Uh, when you get old like me, I don't know if they make you do this in high school. Uh, when you write a paper, a lot of times they have you cite uh, someone who's like got a lot more letters behind their name and like, you know, actually has the degrees and all that kind of stuff, right? You, you cite a, a source as kind of a source of authority, right? So Jesus is essentially saying, my union with the Father, I am revealing God the Father to you. My union with the Father is the evidence that you need. Does that make sense? So the reason that this is relevant for your life is because as a Christian, I think... Aaron, me, and Lindsay, and Jen can all attest to this, that there is going to be seasons where you are going to doubt. You're going to doubt the promises of God. You're going to doubt God's love for you. There's all these wonderful promises in the, in the scriptures, and sometimes, sometimes the, it's hard to believe them, right? Things like where God says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. I will, ne- I will never cast out the one who comes to me. I will give you everything that you need. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that those promises aren't just coming from anybody. They're coming from God Almighty. They are coming from God. And he is promising to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that that he will never throw us out He promises to give us all that we need. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Therefore, those that are united to Christ via faith, that is, they trust in Christ, all those promises are yes in Jesus. And so if you are one with Christ, all the promises of God are yours. Does that make sense? 
Um, last thing, and we'll have to go kind of quick, um, is mission. And so we've talked about that we have a home, right? That we have, that, that we have a way to get home. We have a, 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 sure, a, a sure promise that we will get there. But the next question is, what do we do in the meantime? Because no one knows when Jesus is coming back. A lot of people think they do, but they don't. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. So what do we do in the meantime? And this is, this is what Jesus draws their attention to in verses 12 through 14, when he says, Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So there's some caveats that need to be, uh, some qualifications that need to happen with this passage, uh, specifically with these verses, because there's some prosperity gospel teachers that take these way out of context and they say, see, God's going to give you anything you ask for. No, he's not going to give you anything you ask for, but we'll explain that. So there's this idea of greater works, and then there's this, also this idea of, of God uh, of Jesus giving the disciples what they ask for, right? So now, this idea of greater works in verse 12. So if we're thinking about what, is, what does this mean exactly, there's roughly, there's two options usually that uh, the scholars will, will say. The first option is that greater means more like greater influence, like a global influence, and the second option, oh man, I didn't realize how much was going into this whole thing. Um, <laughs> the second option is that um, greater, it's greater, the works are greater in the sense that the disciples are now working, they're doing these works post-cross in the new covenant age. I don't think, uh, meaning, you know, after the resurrection, I don't think you really have to choose between the two. Um, I think both are equally valid. Um, the works that they are doing now have a more global influence because the gospel has now been spreading for the last 2,000 years and the work of Christ has been proclaimed and talked about around the globe. Um, and the majority of, that, of the ministry has been done after the resurrection, right? <laughs> uh, other than Christ's ministry and the disciples just prior to that. But regardless of what interpretation you take, the message is the same. The message is, is that there's still work to be done. Now, the other, the other part of this, that God will give you whatever you ask in that Jesus will give you whatever you ask in his name. That's the qualifier. That's the way that we understand this asking. God will give you, will give the disciples whatever is in accordance with his will and for his glory. That's the qualifier. God will give you whatever is in accordance with his will and that which is most glorifying to himself. 
That's what it means when it says in his name. So there's still work to be done. That's the point of this, of this section here. In fact, mission is actually something that characterizes disciples of Jesus. In fact, there's four, and they all, yeah, they all end in I-O-N too. Uh, regeneration, devotion, sanctification, and mission. These four things characterize disciples. Regeneration referring to those disciples are people who have been born again by the Spirit of God and given a new desire to love God and to love other people. Okay? That's what it means to be born again. It means to have a supernatural work done in TJ's heart where now he loves God and prior to that he hated God or just didn't care. Right? That's what it means to be born again. That's regeneration. And then devotion means you're devoted to Christ. Sanctification means you're being transformed into the image of Christ. And mission means that you are now joining in Jesus. You're joining Jesus on mission. You're joining him to see the gospel proclaimed throughout the world so that God may be glorified. In fact, Jesus gives us what the Great Commission and he says in, in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go get them. Essentially, that's what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, disciple the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey. That's our work. That's our purpose. That's what we get to join in. So I'll close with this. As I think about 14-year-old me, and I think about how troubled I was at uh, losing everything that I had ever known, I wonder maybe if you are sitting there and you have something troubling going on in your life. Maybe, you know, I, d I don't know all the details of your life, but I do know that life is hard. And... We need this word of encouragement. We need to know that Jesus has prepared a home for us. We need to know that he's coming back. We need to know that he is the way to that home. We need to know that his promises are sure. And we need to know that we are never purposeless in this time when we wait for him to return. We always have a mission. So I'm going to pray, and then we are actually going to play another game. Let's pray first.